stories are a way that we feel that our, our own personal narratives elevate us. They make us special and different. We're not like everybody else. Here's my here's my whole life. Don't you see how compelling this is? And I think um, I think that this aspect of of mental illness, this way of identifying with it, using it as a means of explaining how you function and operate in the world has actually gotten a lot stronger. This week, we highlight a past episode of our Faith and Imagination podcast. Kelsey Osgood is a freelance writer and the author of How to Disappear Completely on Modern Anorexia. Her work has appeared in such venues as the New Yorker's Cultural Desk blog, Time, Harper's, The New York Times, and Salon. Recently, in Plow Quarterly, she published The Yarrates of Ernest Becker, a personal essay about coming to terms with the large existential questions and how religion responds to our biggest concerns of life and death. On this episode, Matthew Wickman of BYU's Faith and Imagination Institute speaks with Kelsey about the stories we tell ourselves with respect to mental health and religion. Kelsey, it's good to see you. Uh, thank you for taking up and talk to me this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, I asked our guests about their uh, about how their faith informs their life and work. And in your case, you've written an essay about how you came to your faith, and that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, today. But perhaps we might begin by acknowledging that you're Jewish, or as most of our guests are Christians. So while we'll talk in a moment about how you came to faith generally, perhaps you can tell us first about how you came to Judaism. Um, oh, let's try to give the nutshell version there, I guess. Um, I, Where I grew up, I grew up in suburban Connecticut. I um, knew very, very few Jewish people. Um, and didn't really even know that there was such a thing as religious Judaism. I mean, most of the Jews that I came to know um, in my later adolescence were, um, you know, unaffiliated, except perhaps maybe they had a bar mitzvah or something like that. Um, and um, I first became acquainted with religious Judaism in college. I went to college in New York City. Um, there were a number of religious Jews at my school. And also I actually ended up meeting a number of them um, while hospitalized for anorexia through, through college. Um, so that was my first real introduction. I also, I had a close friend in college who was a religious Jew. Um, and um, I was always intrigued um, in a way that I characterize now as being sort of sociological or academic in a way. Um, <clears throat> when I graduated from college, a couple of things started to happen at the same time, which was that I, um, we can talk about this a bit later if it comes up, but I, I realized after many, many years of, of very vocal atheism that I actually wasn't an atheist, <laughs> um, which is a little inconvenient. Um, uh, and um, I, started, um, I was starting my writing career. Um, and right. So I had a nascent, um, relationship with God. I was starting my writing career, which, um, I sort of used in some ways as an excuse to enter these explicitly Jewish spaces, um, very Hasidic neighborhoods in Brooklyn, um, very religious conversations. Um, it was a way to get in there. Uh, when I felt that there was really no other way to do that. Um, and I met my now husband, who was born and raised um, uh, a Reformed Jew. So not to get too into the denominational weeds, but 
um, a more on the more liberal end of the spectrum. And those three things kind of conspired, I think, in a way to get me to a place where I realized this was what I wanted to devote my life to. Okay. So I saw your essay in, in, it's a great essay we'll get to in a minute here, in Plow Quarterly, which is often a venue for Christian writing. So how did this essay by you wind up in that venue? Let's, let me think about this. I've actually, um, I mean, professionally, I'm interested in religion generally, and I'm specifically interested in religion that's very active. Um, and um, the Bruderhof community that publishes Plow Quarterly is um, Anabaptist. That's their, their faith uh, tradition. And I had previously done, I previously done a bunch of writing on, um, on Amish communities in different uh, Amish phenomena. So um, I had, I actually had an idea to, that I was going to, a specific idea that I was going to write something about the Bruderhof community. And I, uh, long story short, I arranged to go on a visit there and they said, oh, you know, you should come to um, our community where we have our publishing house. And I thought that I was kind of pitching them. And then I got there and they sort of pitched me on, oh, you should write for our literary journal. We have all these contributors and they were naming, you know, Edward Dandekat and um, Jonathan Sachs, who's a, a very famous rabbi who um, recently passed away, um, British rabbi and um, Christian Wyman. And I was like, what is going on here? And so long story short, um, you know, they, we had a great conversation and, um, they're interested in, um, you know, in discussing faith across um, the religious spectrum and have been really supportive um, of me and my work. And I think, um, you know, I mean, there's obviously major theological differences, but, um, but I think that um, it's, I find a lot of meaning in having these conversations. Um, There's a lot of points of convergence, even if um, you come from a different tradition than others. It's off, it's sometimes it's surprising, but it's always enlivening. I, I completely agree. Yeah. And, and I'm glad they pitched you. I, I love your essay. It's great. Um, one quick question about it before we get into kind of talking about it. Um, it's titled The Yard Site, if I got that pronounced right, <laughs> of Ernest Becker, The Yard Site right. of Ernest Becker. Yeah. Um, for listeners unfamiliar with that term yard site, can you explain what that means? A yard site is essentially a death anniversary. Um, it happens on the anniversary of a person's death every year. Um, in the Jewish uh, tradition, um, and I'm sorry if I'm scooping us, maybe this is going to come up later, but I guess I'll preempt it, um, has a very uh, regimented system of mourning. It's actually like when I talk to you know either secular Jews or non-Jewish people, one thing that people really seem to like envy weirdly about Judaism is this really structured system of mourning. Um, and it, it essentially, um, you say, you say a certain morning prayer for 11 months following, um, a close relative's death, certain people qualify and certain people do not. And then at one year, every year following you then say a particular prayer. Um, and when you, and, you know, maybe other things, maybe you visit their grave, um, at the one year anniversary, my, my father-in-law's one year is in, in August. Um, that's when you mount the gravestone for the first time and you unveil it, it's called an unveiling. 
So it's sort of like a, like a memorial, like a day of memory for, for this individual. Yeah. Okay. And we'll talk about that. Uh, the, the, both your father-in-law and also the yard site uh, for Ernest Becker uh, here in uh, just a little bit. Speaking of structure, though, I really like how you structure your essay. Uh, it's kind of, as I saw it, maybe you, maybe you saw it in 27 parts. I saw it in three, uh, three big parts. It's kind of where you were in life when you came across this really impactful book. Uh, and then you talk about the book, this Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death. And then you talk about kind of your own journey after you'd, you'd found it. Um, the place where you were in life, you know, before you, um, before you'd read this, you described working for a writer who was facing a debilitating and life-ending, uh, eventually life-ending illness. Um, he was obviously very, very frustrated. Uh, could not have been an easy thing to go through, to say the least. And it wasn't easy for you, I think, to work in that kind of capacity for him. Um, and you began asking some large existential questions about life. And a mentor suggested to you that you read Ernest Becker. Okay, then. Um, I'm interested in this. Was Becker's book essential to your grappling with uh, large questions? Or do you think you were just really ready for something like this? And it might have been some other book that had such an impact on you? Um, I don't know if another book could have. It's, it's totally possible. And other books um, have. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, in, in a correspondence of ours, Abraham Joshua Heschel, whose book, The Sabbath, had also a, a very um, significant impact on me, um, or Soloveitchik's um, The Lonely Man of Faith. Um, the existential questioning, though, was not, I mean, it was, there were a lot of um, things that were really unique to the denial of death that spoke to me at that particular moment. But the nature, the existential questioning is something that for me way predates that, um, goes back as far as my earliest conscious memories. Um, so, you know, at that stage in my life, when I was in my um, early and mid twenties, um, when I was, when I was a young child and, and having these kinds of existential questions, I think that there was a lot of, um, that was very difficult for me because I, I had the distinct sense that that didn't happen. Other people didn't do that. I didn't have any frame of reference for that in the culture where I grew up. Um, and so, um, you know, certain times over the course of my life, a little bit in college, and then this experience reading, um, reading Becker's work, um, was so invigorating because it made me realize that other people actually did do this um, and I just hadn't had access to it. Um, and then, you know, the unique parts of it were that the book is really, uh, or the things that were really unique to my experience was that, yes, I was in, I was in this employment, this really odd employment situation where I was essentially the only employee of this man who was dying um, a really visible, um, inevitable, uh, terrifying death. Um, and also I had been, I was coming off of 10 years of therapy and really starting to become a little bit tired of this. Why am I doing this all the time? Where is this going? Um, and that's the real crux of the book is said is, is talking about death and talking about Freudianism and therapy. Um, so I was like, Oh, this is, you know, very relevant to my life. Um, 
So I, I think it was a special uh, thing at that moment. And I'm not sure anything else could have done that exact job, but other books have done similar things to me. Okay. All right. You know, I had not read Becker's book, um, The Denial of Death, uh, when I came across your essay. Uh, but inspired by your essay, I went out and procured the book, and I read it, and I think it's fascinating. Um, one of its central themes is is heroism, right? We need to find heroes and also stand up heroically to the reality of our imminent death. And the book kind of enacts a kind of a heroic stance in some ways. It's full of big ideas. It doesn't shy away from big, bold generalizations. It argues with big thinkers like Freud. Um, there's kind of a machismo to it, its style, you know. Um, it can be a little dismissive of, of certain attitudes or branches of culture, uh, et cetera. So it's, it's both, I found it compelling. I think for a modern sensibility, though, it, it could also be a little bit um, not repulsive, it's too, too strong a word, but it could be kind of like a, it's just such a, it's a strong cup of tea, this, this, this book is. Um, I'm interested, it, it, if you came across it today, where you are today, would you be moved by it again, uh, the way that you were? Or do you think um, it really was uh, just, just the right book at just the right time for where you were? Um, well, you know, I have I think I've read it three times now total. And um, the third time when I read it, Ray reread it in preparation to write this essay. And I, I think I'm still um, compelled by his arguments. And I'm really, um, you know, they confirm a lot of my biases. So of course, I'm compelled by them. But, um, but and I think he's, a, he's an amazing writer. I think that a, a, a re, certainly a more secular reader coming at it in 2021, there's some stuff that really goes against um, our current zeitgeisty ideas, um, specifically stuff about, um, you know, uh, behavior that Becker at the time would have labeled sexually aberrant or um, the nature of mental illness. Um, those things I think a lot of people might find actually downright offensive. Um, I also think I find it a little bit curious this time around, which I didn't notice last time around. And maybe it was all, I also, this was clarified a little bit by reading his deathbed interview with Sam Keen, in which he says, you know, oh, I think what I've done is I've kind of handed, I've, I've managed to, to meld a religious worldview and a scientific worldview, but there's nothing particularly in this book that's scientific. You know, I, I don't know. There's kind of a kind of like, well, where do you get off calling this science? This isn't really science. This is cultural criticism. You know, um, there's no data. There's no studies. It's really um, so. I thought that was a little curious that I, I hadn't noticed that when I read it. Um, you know, more than ten years ago for the first time. Um, so there are things that it brought up for me differently, but um, there's a lot about it that still that I still find. Um, provocative, and I do. I I do like. Uh, I like thinkers who kind of who go there and who make these big pronouncements, um, generalizations, not so much. But but you know he's he's really not afraid to to topple some sacred cows, and and I I I've 
I've always been a sucker for that kind of thought. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Maybe we could read a couple of passages. Let me, let me, if I could read a couple of passages, maybe you could comment on them. Uh, sure. if, you know, whatever you want to say about them. Here's one of them. Um, once the person begins to look to his relationship to the ultimate power, that's capital U, capital P, uh, to infinitude and to refashion his links from those around him to the ultimate power, he opens up to himself the horizon of unlimited possibility of real freedom. In doing so, he breaks through the bounds of merely cultural heroism. He destroys the character like that had him, uh, like, like that had him perform as a hero in the everyday social scheme of things. And by doing so, he opens himself up to infinity, to the possibility of cosmic heroism, to the very service of God. Yeah, so um, I think this is, this is kind of like his argument in a nutshell a little bit. And this is one of the reasons I wrote this essay was because I found it so curious that after this book won the Pulitzer Prize, it's frequently touted, you know, like there's, there's this quirky assortment of celebrities who are really into it. It's like Bill Clinton and Mark Maron and these people and Woody Allen, it's famously in that scene at Nanny Hall. And yet nobody had ever <laughs> talked about the fact that this book is basically like a, a straight up argument for being religious or for believing in God which was not a particularly popular argument then, and it's definitely not a popular argument now. Um, so I think this is, what this passage is doing is, is showing, Becker's main idea was that at some point in our lives, early on usually, when, we're, when we realize that we're going to die, previously, you know, when, um, when we're a small child, before that knowledge sort of sinks in, you know, we're like, um, we're the, the, the heroes of our own story. And then we realize that actually in a cosmic sense, we're much closer to, to worms or squirrels. You know, we're, we're, we're animals, we're going to die. Um, how can I feel so significant? And yet I'm just going to end up being part of the soil the way that every other living thing is. Um, and so we construct these ways of either repressing that knowledge or ignoring it or trying to supersede it. But maybe this is what you were mentioning about the, the, the condescension. A lot of these ways he thinks are rubbish, basically, to put it in British, uh, British way, um, <laughs> um, that they're never going to really work because they're all, they're all earthly, to put it, you know, to put it, they're all about um, what we're doing here. None of them actually transcend this, this, this dilemma that we have. The only thing that does that is belief in God. Um, and he goes into why he thinks that is a little bit. And I mean, most of it is why he thinks that the other things fail. And so it's kind of like, this is the last man standing more or less. Um, so yeah, I think that that passage really kind of is like the blurb, is the, the synopsis. Yeah, great. That's a good distillation too of the book. Thank you very much. One of those things that fail uh, for Becker is at least a certain branch of psychoanalysis, right? Um, and he doesn't hate it, but he's certainly uh, critical of some of its pretensions to all-encompassing uh, existential self-understanding. One more passage here. Let me let me read this one, and, and you can comment. And you also get to this, and we'll get to your essay specifically in a second here. But he writes this, all the psychoanalysis in the world doesn't allow the person to find out who he is and why he is here on earth, why he has to die, and how he can make his life a triumph. 
It is when psychology pretends to do this, when it offers itself as a full explanation of human unhappiness, that it becomes a fraud that makes a situation of modern man an impasse from which he cannot escape. Strong words. So, <laughs> um, yeah, Becker's main, um, the, you know, the main thrust of this book is really pitting Freudianism and religion against one another. Um, Freudianism, because it is the wellspring from which um, our current um, understanding of psychotherapy came, no matter that, you know, our, today, most people, if you're going to therapy, if someone says they're going to therapy, they're not going to analysis, to classical analysis, where they're hearing Freudian terminology, whatever. Um, but, but at the time, it was more prominent that people would go through analysis. And also, um, it's still relevant because it, a lot of our ideas of therapy still come from that. And um, I mean, to me, I really agree with the sentiment and I know that that is not a popular opinion. We really live in a culture that, um, that um, valorizes therapy and the therapeutic endeavor. And I think that there are, um, really, there are really valuable things about therapy, but I think that it is correct that therapy cannot answer these questions. Why? Because nobody can answer these questions, you know? And I think my personal experience in therapy really did mirror this where um, I wouldn't have described my, the, the, the underlying issues of my um, sadness and adolescence as being fear of death, but I would describe them as being really derived from terror of meaning. Why are we here? What are we doing here? And so I had to make it, right? I had to make it up. And in doing so, then I went to therapy. And after years and years of kind of talking about the thing that was on top of it, I got to the point where I realized, oh, the stuff underneath, I can't, that can't be answered here. This person who I'm paying to talk with me cannot tell me why I am here on the earth. Nobody can do that. And I think that there is a kind of dishonesty about, um, you know, what um, self-inquiry can achieve. I think we, for many years, um, have lived under this illusion that if you just dig deeper and deeper into yourself, you can figure out what it is that's going to make you happy, what it is that's going to make you understand what the point of everything is. And I don't think the answer is there. It's not down there. Um, in some ways that can actually be just digging the pit deeper and deeper um, and making the world smaller and smaller. You know, that's not a, that's not a, that's not a world um, enhancing way to live. It's just looking inside of yourself. It's you're, you're just one small person. Um, and I think that, um, I think the therapeutic culture um, really for a long time. I do think that this is changing a little bit actually, but I think they, I think it was really this, um, if you go to, you know, that, that was supposed to be the end goal that you could understand yourself and therefore understand life. And gosh, if someone could really do that, then sure, I would pay them. <laughs> but I don't, I'm just not sure I, I think it can happen. Yeah, my wife is a therapist and she would agree with you. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, good. No, you, I, you'd be speaking her language here, uh, Kelsey. Yeah. So I, on that subject, I, again, I want to tread carefully in posing this question, but I found an aspect of your story uh, really provocatively phrased. Um, you write, um, by my mid-20s, I had already tried a number of heroic systems. 
among them rational atheism, nihilism, and mental illness. Now, mental illness is obviously very real, um, but you suggest that in some cases, it can also serve as an identity for some of us, right? It gives us a way of comporting ourselves in the world. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that. Did I, do I have that right? Am I reading you correctly? Sure, uh, yeah. yeah. So I think that I also want to provide some nuance here. I, I My path into my into um, mental illness when I was a young teenager, 13, 14 years old, was somewhat different than other people's. Um, and yet, as I became more a part of the mental health system when I was a teenager from being hospitalized or being in treatment programs with other young people, I did notice some similarities between the way that I was um, viewing my own struggles and the way that other people viewed theirs. Um, so the existential stuff wasn't, I didn't see that reflected a lot, but what I did see reflected was once a lot of us got our diagnoses or our, our labels, and once we became accustomed and, uh, you know, um, to being a patient and to functioning in this world where we were, um, you know, our, our lives were sort of explained to us by other people, um, it becomes very easy to slip into um, a really strong identification um, it, with that diagnosis, a way of sort of viewing the entire world as a reflection of that illness. And um, I mean, as an example, when I was a teenager and um, was hospitalized with anorexia and was hospitalized with other young people who mainly had eating disorders, um, you know, we would see that in the culture everywhere even when now looking back, it wasn't necessarily there, you know? Um, and I think that um, it was, I mean, Becker would call this character armor, which is sort of ironic because anorexia isn't, you, it doesn't seem on the surface like it would be a way of transcending death because in a way it's sort of running towards death. But I think that um, it's, it's this way of identifying actually with like a group now in the, in the, this is part of what I wrote about in my book in the nineties and the two thousands, it became a, because of the, because of the internet, there were means of identifying as a, as a tribal community, actually. Um, it's a way of giving yourself a story. Stories are a way that we feel that our, our own personal narratives elevate us. They make us special and different. We're not like everybody else. Here's my, here's my whole life. Don't you see how compelling this is? And I think, um, I think that this aspect of, of mental illness, this way of identifying with it, using it as a means of explaining how you function and operate in the world has actually gotten a lot stronger. This has always been a huge component of anorexia actually, and is one of the sort of unique things about it. Um, but now I see it reflected in a lot of other um, diagnoses. Um, and I think that um, it's natural in a lot of ways, um, but it's also, it can be disconcerting um, because 
I mean, for something like for something like anorexia, for obvious reasons, the more that you identify with something that is actually harmful to you, that could potentially kill you, the more it, likely it is that that thing will potentially kill you, right? Um, but uh, but even outside of that, um, you know, it is. Um, I think it goes back to that original or to that point from the previous question that it can be limiting once you start seeing yourself as a certain type of person who behaves in a certain way, it takes away certain agency from you. It deprives you of um, a, a broader vocabulary. Um, it might deprive you of the ability to surprise yourself and other people um, and deprives you of curiosity sometimes. Um, so yeah, I think um, that's sort of how I would answer that. Yeah, I appreciate that's a lot of nuance there in what you said, and I really appreciate that. It does it does point to the um, in some ways the the um, that 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 the path to healing uh, it, it, it requires a lot, and it it, um, it requires oftentimes you know, therapy and treatment of of whatever the illness may be, but it can require not just that. Uh, it can require also kind of sometimes other ways of coming at just e the stories we tell ourselves. I'm taking, picking up from what you said. I know we have a, a friend, a good friend of ours, my wife and I do, who um, is lives a very productive life, very successful life. Um, he, and when he's younger, when he was in his 20s, he was very mentally ill. Uh, and the way he talks about that, and he still has the traces of that as part of his you know, kind of psyche. It's just that's just part of how he's wired, and that. You know, but he says that when he was the difference between then and now is when he was younger. He said he really needed to be ill, uh, and I think that that that's his sentence, not mine. And I've always found that to be really provocative. It was it gave him some stability. Well, okay, this explains a lot about why uh, I find life difficult. Um, for him, it became a, a, a way to um, to account for things that had really hurt him. And mm -hmm. I, it's a very real thing. I mean, me continue with your essay, um, your story. You write this. I guess it's a, it's a provocative uh, part of your essay. You say, when I placed my existential depression within the context of universal creation and destruction, as Becker pushed me to do, it became painfully clear that the tools I had been operating with previously were way too small for the job. I was trying to fix a burst pipe with a pair of tweezers. That's a great line. That's a great line. Now, you eventually turned to um, religion. My interest is this. Did you find what you were expecting when you eventually did? Or did you find something altogether different than what perhaps you were set up to believe you'd find from uh, reading Becker? So um, that's a really great question. I think that I found some of it, but not all of it. Um, you know, I guess our whole lives, right? Um, when we look at hindsight and we look in hindsight, we look so naive in certain ways. So um, of course the me of 24 and 25 looks super naive, but even the me of 31, when I finished my formal conversion to Judaism looks fairly naive. And I knew this at the time going into it, but I think for me, prior to converting, to, to deciding that I was gonna pursue conversion, um, I knew about myself that one of the things that I had always wanted in life was to have a worldview, to have an overarching worldview. And that overarching worldview, I, I always hoped, even though I sort of always knew it was never gonna happen, would contextualize everything. Everything would make sense. 
I would not have um, the proclivity for um, ethical rumination the way that, or, or an existential rumination um, that I was, you know, I had to develop, was born with or developed. I don't even know exactly how it came about. Um, and I will, so before I converted, I thought, okay, I'm, I know this about myself. I know I want it. So is that, is that yearning itself wrong or have I failed? Have I simply just not found the thing that satisfies it? Does this make sense? What is my task in life? Is my task in life to find a way to honor that hunger or to eradicate it, right? Um, and I landed on the former. Um, and um, because I think at that point, I was really tired of feeling like I needed to um, change or tweak or stamp out certain aspects of my natural personality, which I guess I had felt throughout therapy in some ways that I had been encouraged to do. Um, so I think regardless of that, there was still a little kernel of hope that when I converted and when I, when I, you know, the, the process of becoming more and more Jewish, which continues to this day, and I think will continue for the rest of my life, that that existential rumination would um, go away, maybe, because there were there all the answers were there. Now, I was joking with a friend of mine the other day, and I said, um, you know, maybe I, <laughs> I, think, I bet they're on the wrong horse on this one, because if any, <laughs> if any religion is, uh, you know, known for um, inviting that kind of dialogue over thousands and thousands of years and volume upon volume of text, it's Judaism. It's not a religion that, I mean, it is a law-based religion. So there are a lot of ways in which if you, if there's a specific issue that comes up, you look to the law the same way that you would look to the law as being a, a citizen of a contemporary nation state. But there is also um, so much opportunity for um, debate and theological struggle. Um, it's, it's all there. And so um, I think that even though I think to answer your question, to recap, um, I had hoped against hope that maybe um, it would put an end to to all of my spiritual seekerness, um, but it didn't. And um, in some ways, I find that still difficult. And in some ways, I feel like it's amazing, and that you know, it's a part of me that is that can be challenging to deal with, but it's also a part of me that I think that if given the option to truly get rid of it, I wouldn't take it. Yeah, okay. That met, resonates with me a lot. You know, I, I look at uh, spiritual life, broadly defined, not as the answer to seeking, but as a way to seek, right? And, and as a more satisfying way in a lot of ways to pose large questions uh, and to find answers that are not so much one time only here it was, but rather, you know, that unfold over time in ways that um, help me understand my, my who I am more fully, who I am in relation to others, uh, the world, uh, kind of how, how, to, how to get my head around what, how I relate to it, what I can do to, to try to make it better in some limited way uh, that I can get my own life around. Um, so I, I, that what you said there, I think, really is uh, I think is right. Um, 
you know, you, you, let me ask you one more question about, about that, and then we'll kind of turn toward the back end of your essay. You summarized that Becker felt that the only valuable conversation we can have is a vertical one, that is a conversation with God. Uh, do you believe that to be true? And if so, what does that mean in the context of your relationship with loved ones? You know, who are kind of not, who are horizontal <laughs> to you, they're, they're alongside you and not uh, exalted above you where God would be. So I think this is one element in which um, I don't want to say Judaism excels at, that's a weird way to put it, but, um, you know, like many um, Abrahamic faiths, Judaism has this concept that all humans are created in the image of God. Um, And also because it is a religion that is really, um, there is is an afterlife in Judaism, certainly in Orthodox Judaism, um, but it is not a major focus. Um, there's no, you know, well, as far as I know, anyway, there, there aren't, um, there isn't an elaborate vision of heaven or, uh, you know, of the, um, of the messianic world. There are glimpses of it, but when people, when Orthodox Jews learn and study and, um, pray a lot of it, or, you know, and, and the, the, the legal concepts that we have, all of it is uh, not all of it. A lot of it is really about how we deal with other people. Um, you know, how do you, if you read parts of the Talmud or the Sharach or texts that are about, that are, um, you know, about um, religious conduct, it's um, what do you pay the person who accidentally killed your donkey? You know, like it, this stuff, I mean, obviously it sounds to, to modern ears, why do I have a donkey? But, um, but really it's, it, what it's about is that every, all of these interactions that we're having are spiritual in nature. All of the ways that we treat other people, all of the things um, that, um, the way that I cook in my kitchen, having a kosher kitchen, these things that are mundane and earthly um, are all about how we relate to God here in our lives in the everyday. And I think that that is, um, for some people, what's really frustrating about Judaism because it feels so um, detailed, like overly detailed. Okay, well, why would God really care whether or not my sweater is made of linen and wool? You know, why why would he care about these things? Um, we don't know a lot of, I mean, there's, there is an acknowledgement in Judaism that there are portions of the mitzvot that we don't know why, why we were commanded to do these things, but we do them because they are a reflection of our faith in God. And, and a major part of that is, is how we talk to other people, whether you keep a peaceful, happy home, um, whether you, you know, how you parent your children, um, how you pay the people who, how you compensate the people who work for you, all of these things are accounted for in in um in jewish law and in jewish thought and um i think that that is um you know so the two it's not really a question of either or they're they're completely intertwined yeah yeah that that uh that rings true for me there's a there's a a pastor scripture in latter-day saint uh the canon of scripture for latter-day saints it's uh, where god is speaking and says that all things to me are spiritual and that never have you given a commandment which was purely material or temporal. It's a it's a it's a it's a resonant idea, and I like how you explain uh, what that means uh, in the context of your faith tradition. Um, attention to small detail being spiritual and not simply 
uh, you know, kind of circumstantial detail. You know, you write in your essay, you write really movingly about attending your father-in-law's funeral, and you describe uh, the customs of Jewish funerals, you know, shoveling dirt directly onto the coffin, um, meeting members of your religious community in person and over Zoom, uh, sharing memories of your father-in-law and so on. And you write this, I'm quoting from you, it says, nobody told us he had transcended to a better place or that we should feel anything other than sad or even angry with God, as arguing with him is a time-honored tradition and right. And there's a Jewish saying that I won't re repeat here in Hebrew, as I don't think I couldn't pronounce it, but you're welcome to do so if you'd like to. But it, its translation is, blessed is the true judge whose judgment we must accept, but are not obliged to enjoy. Okay, it's a profound statement whose judgment we must accept, but are not obliged to enjoy. How does that inform uh, your spiritual life? So um, I, to clarify, okay, so the phrase is actually Baruch Dayan HaEmet, which is blessed is the true judge. The second part is just me. Okay. Right? Oh, fair it's, enough, yes. Um, that's not, that's not um, liturgical. Um, Baruch Dayan HaEmet is usually what you say upon first hearing of somebody's death. Um, um, the, yeah, I mean, you know, arguing is a time-honored Jewish tradition and arguing with God is certainly not off limits. It's all over the Torah, the Jewish people whining and complaining and um, whether they're doing it with God or they're doing it with, with Moshe or, um, you know, certainly through their wanderings through the desert. Um, I think that, um, I, I do think that Judaism sort of acknowledges that people are complex and can be, um, you know, are not going to there is, like in most traditions, this sort of idea that we're all, if you can, if you work at it, you can reach higher and higher spiritual planes. Um, and you can get to a point where you're really at peace with whatever it is that God is throwing at you. But there is not, and I think maybe some of this comes from the lack of focus on the afterlife, um, because there's such a, uh, um, you know, such a savoring and such a joy for being here on earth with each other. Um, there isn't, there just isn't this tradition of feeling like, um, you know, like, like people when they're gone, it's better for them. Uh, maybe it is, but we also are, we're, we're thinking about ourselves. We're upset. We're unhappy. Um, and there's, you know, when you read the morning traditions of immediately following, if following someone's death, tearing your clothes, um, sitting low to the floor, um, making sure that the mourner is not alone, um, going to the mourner's house, the mourner stays in their house and you go to them, you bring the, the a quorum for prayer to them. Um, there is this really, this acknowledgement or it right between the person's death and their funeral, which is supposed to happen really quickly. Um, they're, they're, a lot of their obligations are, are suspended. They don't have to do anything. It's there. It, somebody described it to me as like a spiritual no man's land. There's, there's a acknowledgement of the fact that they're, they're suffering. And um, I think that I, for me, it's helpful to know, to, to feel that, um, that the tradition accepts that I sometimes I'm not going to have the perfect idealized emotional response to things. And that as humans, um, you know, we can't, we can't do that. And especially in our moments of like really deepest grief that, um, 
you know, that, that um, the community needs to, to come together to comfort that person. Um, because even, even if they are in a better place, it's sort of immaterial to that person at that moment. Um, somebody who's lost a child or their spouse or is not going to feel that way. You know, I, that really comes out for me in the concluding paragraph of your essay. Um, I think it's a, it's a beautiful way to end the essay. Do you have your essay uh, in front of you? Uh, I somewhere do. I do. <laughs> I do. Well, I do. Let me read this okay. to you then. I mean, I, this is, this is, uh, I'll be, I'll be part of it. Um, you, what you talk about in that, in that last paragraph is how every year on March 6th, you commemorate, uh, Becker's death, right? This is the yard site, right? That's what it is. And as you put it there, I'm quoting you now, sometimes I wonder if Becker would think me foolish to want to commemorate him in this way. Surely the person truly liberated from the fear of death would have no need to be remembered or to have little altars erected. But Becker didn't expect us to be pure spirit, just as he didn't think we were only animals. No, he knew very well that we are both. That connection of animal and spirit, I think, what you've been addressing here a bit, I think it's a really profound um, insight into our nature as, as humans, as questing beings. Uh, who are bound uh, to and enabled by our animality, but who yearn uh, to ask and answer large questions that um, uh, purely material things can't of themselves fully uh, answer for us. L let me close by asking you a question. You've got this book that you're writing. Uh, are you still writing it or is it done now? I, I, I mentioned it in Plow. I thought it's provocative. Um, uh, it's about religious conversion among millennial and Gen Z women. Uh, and I'm interested in what you're finding in this research that has surprised you. Um, let's see. So, no, it's not done yet, for the record. Um, and I've been working on this. There was a previous iteration, and, and now then I sort of narrowed the focus to talk specifically about women. Um, I don't want to go on a tangent, so I'll, you know... Um, you'll have to read the book, I guess, to figure out why I did that. Um, <laughs> sure. But um, I think that um, over the course of the years of researching conversion, having gone through conversion myself, um, I'm always sort of surprised how rarely when people tell their stories, they actually talk about God um, or talk about theological uh, struggle really at all. Um, there's, um, I, ironically, for our purposes, um, a psychoanalyst named Hannah Ullman, who's an Israeli psychoanalyst who wrote a, a book about religious conversion, a sort of a study, an academic book, a long, long time ago, decades ago. And it's pretty clear in the book that she doesn't really like the religious converts that she's interviewing, and she doesn't really approve of them. But she, I do think she says some, some smart things. She says that, you know, um, for a lot of people, it's more like falling in love than it is really about having a sort of um, dark night of the soul experience where you're coming out at the other side and you're re-examining your theological principles. Um, and um, some of that is, is, you know, some I think about it a lot in terms of my own life. Um, while I do feel like I'm somewhat of an outlier that the existential stuff was really a huge driver, um, a, a huge reason why I ended up in the position that I ended up, there is also um, an element of, of um, 
you know, when, when people ask me about my story, I often kind of take the God part out and I never can quite figure out why that is. Is that because it really wasn't the, the primary source of, of, of my desire? Or is it because, you know, it's the 21st century. And when you're talking to people, particularly if you're talking to people who are secular or um, atheist or whatever, um, that it feels very intimate and very sort of odd and um, kind of romantic, weirdly to be saying, to be talking about a love for God. Um, it's a little bit embarrassing. Um, so I think it's been interesting to me to see that, to see how, um, how that, this thing that you expect um, to be sort of front and center in everybody's experience is either something that they kind of hide or that comes a little bit later, actually, after their initial interactions with their faith, um, or might in some cases be absent entirely. Um, so I think that's probably the something that other people might find the most surprising. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I would I would not it makes a lot of sense that you say it, but I wouldn't have thought about that uh, at the top. No, um, so thank you for that. Uh, well, your um, your essay here, uh, Kelsey, in uh, Plow Quarterly, uh, really uh, moved me. Uh, certainly spoke to my love for God, and I'm grateful uh, for you uh, to for, for, for you writing it, and especially grateful that you took time to talk with us here on the podcast. Thank you for your time and for your insights. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Bobby May. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.